Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Are you ready? It's time for your weekly dose of Wayne's Comics. Welcome to episode 464 of the Wayne's Comics Podcast. As always, thanks so much for listening. This week I have a special guest, and that's Mark Russell from Ahoy Comics' Billionaire Island and Second Coming. The collected edition of Billionaire Island is now available, and it's described this way. Welcome to Billionaire Island, where anything goes if you can afford it, but the island's ultra-rich inhabitants are about to learn that their ill-gotten gains come at a very high price. We explore this fascinating story, including the characters, the island, and what all this means. Then we get into Second Coming, described this way. God commands Earth's mightiest hero, Sunstar, to accept Jesus as his roommate and teach him how to use his power in a more powerful way. Jesus, shocked at the way humans have twisted his message over the two millennia, vows to straighten them out. We talk about Mark's career, about what he has coming next, including more Second Coming and other great projects. So I'm sure you're going to enjoy what he has to say. There's a lot to get to in this episode. So let's get on with the show. It's great to welcome back to the podcast, Mark Russell, creator of such wonderful things as the Flintstones, Wonder Twins, Edgar Allan Poe's Snifter of Terror, uh, Prez, which is what I talked with you about last time. Gosh, five years ago, it's hard to believe. How you doing, Mark? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back. It's good to talk with you. We've got a couple of good things we have to make sure we talk about, and that is uh, two from Ahoy Comics, which is one of my favorite companies. And you've got Billionaire Island and Second Coming. So we've got to get into that. Let's start off with Billionaire Island, why don't we? Why don't you, for, for somebody who may not have uh, read the book, give a description as to what this is about? It's about an artificial island created by billionaires to uh, escape the end of the world, basically. And um, the uh, and the unforeseen consequences it causes. Mm-hmm. Now, this came out in, in individual issues from Ahoy, and the trade has just come out. So th- this is a good time to jump on board. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's and I'm really happy with how it turned out. It hit a little bit of a bump in that it uh, issue one came out right before everything shut down uh, from COVID, and so there was a six month delay between issue one and issue two, uh, which is really ironic considering that one of the the major plot lines in the book is about a pandemic. Okay, because I want to read the description of it. It looks like it's from Google Books. It's called A Savage Satire Reuniting the Critically Acclaimed Team Behind DC's Flintstones. Uh, writer Mark Russell and artist Steve Pugh, who is one of my favorite artists, uh, in a new graphic novel. Welcome to Billionaire Island, where anything goes, if you can afford it. Uh, but the island's ultra-rich inhabitants are about to learn that their ill-gotten gains come at a very high price. Which I liked. Uh, talk a little bit about the the characters, because you know the main person we see is kind of a well. It starts out with a sort of like the the lifestyles of the rich and famous thing going on, and there's a lot of television involvement with it. Uh, talk about doing that and the stuff, because I'm always interested that rich people like to seem to like to be on television a lot, and that you you wove that into it. Was that one of the things you were trying to communicate with that? Yeah, they seem to think they're on a per- perpetual reality TV show. They all seem to think that this is a game and that they're just on the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills or something and that the, the lives of real people aren't at stake. But yeah, there's a lot of analogs to um, to real billionaires that we know, even though they're, they're sort of loosely based on these people or there's sort of more am- amalgamations of them. There's a, there's a Harvey Weinstein-like character who runs a movie studio on Billionaire Island, and the because it's international waters, and they're not beholden to American law or cultural standards. They they hire a lot of the movie stars that are that have been disgraced in Hollywood. A lot of people that were are no longer hireable because of the Me Too scandals. So uh, it's become the sort of refuge for for those types of, of actors. They and they star in the, what what appear to be like straight to red box sort of B movies. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the main guy who we first see is a guy by the name of Rick Canto, and he's the founder of Bell Canto, social media products and stuff like that. And he's the one that introduces us to everything, and he kind of gives people an idea as to what's going on on the island. And not everybody <laughs> – there's a guy who has a PhD, and he's dressed in a pizza hutch bunny outfit which is kind of funny and they all have to do different things you know we discover that being rich has its threats as well I talk about a little bit about that because you know the, the thing about the island is that it, it doesn't stay in one place either it moves around where did the idea come for that well it came from uh reading a lot of other articles about billionaires trying to uh escape reality or the consequences of the world they've created by buying private islands or buying bug out bunkers in New Zealand. In fact, I just read an article today about how uh, Ivanka Trump and Jared uh, Kushner bought like a um, bunker uh, off, you know, the coast of Florida on like a private island, uh, presumably to escape the reality of the world they've helped create for the rest of us. Uh, so it's it, that really has kind of inspired the story, the premise. I got a huge kick out of the actual name of the island. It's called Freedom Unlimited. But the name of the book is something that they actually talk about possibly naming it, and they dismiss it. I got I, I love that self-aware type of humor. It really Thanks. made me laugh. I really I, wanted I, to call it uh, Freedom Unlimited, so it would be abbreviated F-U Island, which <laughs> is sort of like um, you know, a Freudian slip uh, on behalf of the island. But, it, but it's also sort of a, a nod to how – 
they tend to market them screwing you over as freedom. So you'll feel good about it. It's not that we're stealing everything and not giving anything back. It's that we, we have the freedom to use our money in any way we see fit, which is by not taking care of you or, or not solving the problems that we've created. Uh, so it's really about the, the marketing of the billionaire class, which tries to get you and average people to like imagine that they're fighting for that by not paying estate taxes or by not paying into the system that we all need to survive, that this is somehow on behalf of your freedom. Mm-hmm. Well, I got a huge kick out of the reporter who shows up. And the first thing that, that uh, Canto says to him, he says, hi, I'm, I'm Shelly Bly, reporter from the Miami Herald. He says, I didn't realize that was still a thing. He goes, Miami reporters, he goes. Yeah. Yeah. And she's actually a, a nod a bit uh, to Nellie Bly, who was a groundbreaking female reporter in the early 20th century. She was known as a stunt journalist. So she would do things like pretend to be insane so they'd put her in in an insane asylum so she could report on the uh the inhumane conditions in insane asylums firsthand or she would pretend to be a prostitute so that she would get arrested and then she could report on the conditions of you know the corruption the shakedown for prostitutes who had been arrested and now they would get shaken down for money by the police and judges. So I wanted to bring that sort of edgy journalism to this character. So I, I named her Shelley Bly as a nod to, to Nellie Bly. Mm-hmm. Now, right away she gets into trouble and it's in the very first issue. And I, I don't know how much you want to reveal because I, I want to tease. I don't want to reveal, but she gets into trouble. She ends up in a place where, shall we say, other reporters and other people go on this island. And yeah, and I don't feel bad about spoiling this because, like as you say, it all happens in the first issue. It's yeah, she okay. gets locked in the hamster cage. So <laughs> because this uh, this floating island of billionaires is international waters, and because it's always moving around, there's really no accountability for anybody on the island. So Rick Canto has his own private prison, basically. On his, in his house. And it's basically built like a giant hamster cage where they, they just line the floor with sawdust and they, they bring fresh food and water every day to the prisoners. But it's where he keeps people who are basically problematic for him. People who know things about him and his business that he'd rather them not know. Well, what's funny is, is that the people react differently to being in there. Some people think that this is a wonderful advancement. And there's at one point where in which they drop money on them. And some people go, oh, wow, money. I got to get more you know, money for this. And <laughs> to, to watch them react the way that they do to all these different circumstances, I, I got a huge kick out of it. You know, the moment money appears – people act differently. There's the one guy with the big beard on and he's like, I'm not going to get involved. Not me until a hundred dollar bill slaps on his chest. And very quietly, he takes it and puts it in his pocket. Yeah. It's really sort of a metaphor about how uh, the middle class uh, gets co-opted into supporting a system that really doesn't serve them. They're, they know they're prisoners on some level, but at the same time, they imagine that because there's money involved, because they're getting paid and because they're being taken care of, that it's all for the best. That at some point, they will 
be released from the prison they find themselves in because they're being given money. Why would they pay us if they weren't going to let us go? And it's now, it's really how they maintain the illusion that this is somehow for your benefit. Mm-hmm. It's just amazing to me. It's, it's, it's funny to watch. Now, there's one other character in the first book that we probably ought to talk about is the guy that goes in and he kills a rich person. And he takes that person's place. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because he adds an interesting perspective to all this. You know, he's he's got a very different way of looking at things from, say, the reporter or others. Right. Uh, talk about who he is and, and, and what his, his role in this is. He's the other protagonist. In addition to Shelley Bly, there's a mercenary uh, named Trent Arrow who had been working um, – for the CEO of, uh, of Agricorp, which is this food company, which is owned by uh, Rick Canto, the, um, the billionaire who he's hunting on Billionaire Island. And because his, his family was killed and he was, felt, feels like he was betrayed by the billionaires and trying to create this sterility virus to uh, infect the rest of the world to save themselves, he makes it his personal mission to kill the billionaire so he feels crossed him, that, that destroyed his family. So he starts with the CEO of Agricorp and then works his way up to Rick Canto, the owner of Agricorp, who is living on Billionaire Island. So it's really a story about how him and um, his and Shelley's stories sort of dovetail, and how they, they meet at the same conclusion despite coming to Billionaire Island for very different reasons. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really funny to, to, to read this stuff. You talked a little bit about something I was fascinated about was the, you know, there's all these people going on talking about how to maintain the earth and how to keep, you know, how, how much food we need to, to feed people. And they take a very interesting approach. And you've mentioned it. There's a sterility virus or something that's put into food that they're giving to people. And the idea is, is to reduce the population such that th- there'll be enough food for the people that are left as things that are going on. I, I found that a real interesting approach. <laughs> hey, yeah, it's, it's in their, their reality as with ours, uh, global warming is ravaging the planet. Uh, as I speak, two thirds of the planet Earth's sur- land surface is undergoing desertification. It's drying up. So they know, they see the writing on the wall and they know that because of this, the agricultural infrastructure of the planet is going to collapse at some point within the next generation or two. So their idea is to introduce the sterility virus into the food supply so that people won't be having children and the, the Earth's human population will decrease to a point where uh, there won't be as many people around to starve when that happens as, um, as there would be if they didn't. And it's not, it's not altruistic. It's not that they're doing this because they're afraid of the human misery. They're doing this because they're afraid that if there's billions of starving people, they're going to come find them on Billionaire Island. That, that you can't have that many starving ants at the picnic without them eating your fried chicken. They're going to come find you. So they feel like if they can get the population sort of subdued and under control, then they can just sort of let the human race, they can cut the human race adrift and let it sort of go its own, leave it to its own fate while they can, they survive to continue the human race in comfort on Billionaire Island. That's the plan. Well, on Billionaire Island, there are some fun things. There's a, uh, (laughs) and these things made me smile and laugh when I read them. There's the Alan Greenspan Fun Academy. 
which made me laugh out loud when I saw that. Yeah. Alan Is there Greenspan anything that sounds and, less fun than the Greenspan <laughs> Fun Academy? I was going to say, I said, I, I, I can't imagine what they do in there. That was the thing yeah. I couldn't figure out. It's the kind of thing, like, you you kid, you, you they tell you you're going to the Fun Academy, and you're like, yay, and then you show up, and it's like this, this Alan Greenspan Fun Academy, or you know, all based upon, like, free market principles, and you're just like, oh, God. <laughs> I can't. I honestly, I have no idea what they do in there. I mean, I don't know if you have any idea what kind of fun things they would do. You said it's based on market principles, so I can't imagine. How much. Yeah, they probably have. I originally wanted to write a scene where they are having like an art auction, where they're mm-hmm. basically the kids have all created these art projects, mm-hmm. uh, and then they have an art auction for the kids, and like the billionaires showed up and like like bid on their on their kids' art. Yeah, but then they, you know, because there's like a tiff between the billionaires, they start bidding on each other's kids' art so they can oh. destroy it because they think that other kids' art is better than their kids. And so to make the kid feel better, they want to buy the other kids' art. And it results in this sort of fracas. But there just wasn't room to put it in like the, the six issue plot line. So maybe if we do a sequel or something. But, uh, but yeah, that was one of the things I'd envisioned to, that, that went on inside the uh, Alan Greenspan. Uh, fun academy that that yes. I never really saw the page. Oh goodness, I I that one got me. But anyway, there's other things going on, and there's what's called the Invisible Hand Massage Parlor, and I, yeah, I'm not sure by the uh, the Russian billionaire, the resident Russian billionaire who's on the ruling council. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> the one that I'm sure I, I can see people's faces turning red about was the Natural Selections Restaurant. Yeah. And it's got endangered, rare, last chance to eat things. <laughs> yeah, they, I, I guess their their reasoning is that well, if the world's coming to an end, why not enjoy some endangered species? Why not you know eat some white rhino or or some like you know red tarantula tacos or or something? Why not enjoy these species while you can? Which is really again just sort of like a, a ham-fisted metaphor for what is actually happening. Uh, on the planet just put in stark terms put more embarrassing terms than the way they would they would have you believe it's it's happening Mm -hmm. well i also got a kick out of middleman software this this software this app came along and it it like overnight got rid of two-thirds of middle management yeah and, and when i write science fiction um, I'm, I'm not really trying to be predictive. I'm not trying to say this is what's going to happen. It's more about parodying the present than trying to predict the future. But this thing I think will actually happen. This thing I think I'm amazed that it hasn't happened already or they haven't created some sort of app or something to take the jobs of like most of middle management. And I say that as somebody who used to work in middle management. And I, I remember the whole time I was working that job, kept thinking like, it's just a matter of time before they create like some automated app that does everything that I do. It's just amazing to me. Now I've noticed, I, I, I've read a couple of your books and I, I noticed that sporks tend to turn up in your, your story sometime. Yeah. Like spork- oh, you they're, okay, they're very, they have a lot of utility. It's a fork, <laughs> it's a spoon. It's, it, it's well, like the perfect sort of like, like prison sort of Swiss army knife. Mm-hmm. Well, it gets involved in the hamster cage is what happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spork gets involved with that. And I don't want to spoil too much because I, I, I got, I, again, I got a kick out of the Spork being involved with that kind of thing. I, I love that. Let's just say it, it causes a change in how things are going in there. And I got a, a huge kick 
And it's, uh, it's I, again, uh, not to be too not to be too flatulent about this, but it's again, sort of a metaphor about how, you know, you can, you can invest these billions of dollars in creating this sort of like foolproof system. And yet something like a, like a 30 cent spork can throw a wrench in your works. (laughs) Well, you explain why that happens later on. And I don't want to spoil that here, but let me tell you, I got a huge kick out of that when I read that. And I think other people will too, when they get to read why a spork can do such damage i got a massive kick out of that i have to say that was a funny bit about that there's i I wanted to talk about there's a surprise that i don't dare even hint about about who is the chairman of the board on this island yeah that that's a good spoiler to leave unspoiled i think oh gosh when i read that let me just say i was stunned and how decisions are made made me laugh out loud i (laughs) <laughs> let's just say that was awfully creative. I have to say, I, I did not in my slight, farthest dreams of imagination ever figured that was how decisions got made on this island. Well, and without giving anything away, I, I could talk about that a little bit. It was, it was okay. kind of like inspired <laughs> by this uh, article I read about how uh, money managers and hedge fund managers um, on Wall Street regularly underperform the market which means that you could use a magic eight ball or, you know, a, a, a game of Yahtzee and probably come up with better investments than these people who you're paying billions of dollars to invest your money. You could do it. You would be better just doing it by random, which to me just sort of underscores the absurdity of the system that we're all sort of dependent upon. Mm-hmm. I just, I think people are going to laugh out loud when they get to it. At least I did. I was surprised about it i thought that's one of the great things about your writing is i am always surprised when i turn the page sometimes i go oh no that's not what that is it's just really great things about your writing and and let's just say there are other people on the island and we get to meet one in particular that is later on again that he comes later on in the in the book and i don't want to spoil that but he's got a lot of information that kind of explains how things got the way they were which i really like and that's that's one of the things i really enjoyed about the book were the characters like i i talked about canto and there were there are other rich people we run into and each one of them is very different from the other and i really like the way you develop them into you know vibrant very real people that we could you know honestly run into in such a situation so i i wanted to say that was kind of fun are they products of your imagination are you looking at at real people and kind of drawing inspiration from them or a combination of both how do you decide like characters like canto and other people well a lot of them are amalgamations of things of people that i'm seeing in the real world archetypes of roles that I think are being played. The uh, billionaire who didn't work to get any of their money, they just sort of inherited it or the person who did work and get their money, but now is buying all these businesses that they know nothing about. It's really, they're all really kind of like metaphors for how the resources of the world are being controlled and dictated by people who don't know what they're doing by people who, or just don't care about the problems of the world. And, and so it was these sort of archetypes that sort of drove my need to create the characters. But I did try to, I didn't want to just leave them as archetypes. I wanted to actually develop them as more rounded, sort of interesting characters. It gives them some iconography. So I, I made them a little different. I tried to base them on real people or 
maybe a couple of real people and um, make them into more interesting characters. And, that, and I, to me, I think that when you're telling a story, the characters are kind of more interesting than the plot. Usually the mm-hmm. plot should sort of emanate from the characters rather than the other way around. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's just a, a fun book to read. We, we meet a rich guy who wears a, a, a country Western hat and he's funny on his own levels. And, and the guy who, who, well, let's just say who, who, who's killed the, the, the rich guy, he ends up in the, in the mix and he doesn't last too long, you know, before people find out. I, I also was fantastic, you know, fascinated by the technology that they used, you know, they, they use the drones, which, you know, are, are, there's still a lot of people who are really fascinated with drones and they have a lot to do with what's going on in there. You know, the way you get on and off the Island is on a drone and things like that. So I, I was really interested in, in that and the, the choice of guns and the things that they used were all really fascinating about it. It's, it's almost feels like this, this book, you, you intended this to be set a little bit in the future, but not too far. Right, exactly. It, it it is kind of about the present, but at the same time, a lot of these things are based upon where I think that the world is actually going and what sort of technology we will have and what and how the technology will be largely based upon our social reality of increasing inequality. And I I wanted to like sort of create a world that that um, exacerbated the divisions we see now, but is still really believable. This is where it could be going. Like most science fiction, I wanted to sort of work as a warning, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, it does that. I, you know what it reminded me of? It, I don't know if you've ever seen, there was an old Charlie Chaplin movie called Modern Times. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love Modern Times. It was, I, I, my mom used to tell me about that. And there's, you know, they decide they can't eat. And so suddenly these cobs of corn are appearing in front of them spinning. And when they want them to go faster, the corn goes faster so that they, they can, you know, try and eat faster and stuff like that. And then he ends up in the machine getting thrown around. This book very much reminded me of modern times on that Thanks. way. Yeah. It, about the over automation, about like trying to like overthink the future. One of the movies that, that, uh, that I love that was actually a pretty big influence on this book is actually bridge on the river Kwai, because I remember watching a, a documentary about the, that movie. And they said that like the, like they, they showed to some people who had actually done sort of commando raids in world war two, like the one you see in bridge on the river Kwai, and, and one of the old like uh, Royal or one of the, the British army guys who was talking about the realism of bridge on the river Kwai said, well, the one thing you got right is that commander raids almost never go the way you plan there. You know, everything goes wrong from the v- very beginning and it's, they're all about improvisation or taking advantage of what opportunities come up because they never happen. They never work out the way you planned it. So I really wanted to write Trent Arrow's storyline like that. This is a commander raid where everything goes wrong from the very beginning and nothing happens the way he intended it to. Well, it's, it was just a fascinating story. It's, I would love to spoil stuff, but I don't. I don't. Want, I want people to get to enjoy it like I did, and it's just one of those classic books. I think that people really ought to, you ought to really have in your collection because it is just something. Especially if you're, you're you you see the humor in modern things that are going on. I really, really like this book and a billionaire island, and it's out from Ahoy. And it's 144 pages, and it's just come out recently, so. 
I would highly recommend you get to your store and tell them if they don't have it to order it for you because it is one of those great books I think is going to be a classic. I think people are going to refer to it just like I did with Modern Times. I think it's going to be one of those ones people when they talk about capitalism and and the world as we have it. This is going to be one of those references where people say, you know, you should really read this book. Well, thank <laughs> you. It's, going to be great. it's a great book. Now, there's we should move on to you've got a, a, a follow-up series to second coming uh, that that's going to be uh, starting up very soon. Yeah. Um, this is one of those interesting books because I, I well, well, let me read the Patton Oswalt on the trade paperback has a great quote says it's profane, heartfelt and hilarious. A modern life of Brian. Why don't you tell people what second coming is actually about so that, that we can start to talk about it. It's about Jesus Christ returning to earth um, during the age of superheroes and God sends them to like, basically share a two bedroom apartment with the world's greatest superhero Sunstar, And it's, and they, they, they have this sort of conversation about what is the right way to sort of heal the world. Is it with power the way superheroes do it? Or is it with compassion the way Christ does it? And it's really, that's the central conflict is about whether or not the world is better fixed with compassion or power. And that sets up most of the sort of storylines that they they have together. It's really interesting because, you know, Sunstar has a girlfriend, shall we say, and that complicates matters some. And, of course, you know, you do like to write about religion and God and things like that. You know, there's you have a book called God is, is Disappointed in You, right. if I quote that correctly. That's and right. so it, – it's interesting when when you start to look at God and Jesus and <laughs> I, I'm I'm entertained, let's just say, by the the take you you follow with all, with religious things. It's <laughs> you're going to challenge things. This is not a safe space kind of book. If you are a interreligion and things like that, this is something that's going to well, it's going to be something that that it's going to challenge your your perspectives on things. Well, it doesn't mock religion. It certainly doesn't mock Christ. But I think it, what it does is much more dangerous than that. It, it asks questions about what Christ really came to earth to accomplish and whether or not he succeeded. And I I think that it's really not very it's not it's a really pro-Christ book. Is but at the same time it's very sort of anti-Christianity in a way. It examines a lot of the ways in which we have sort of misinterpreted Christ's mission and that we have sort of used his uh, teachings uh, for our own benefit. We have sort of co-opted him and turned this guy who was really about subverting the institutions of power and oppression into a tool of power and oppression. And Christ comes back for a lot of ways to set the record straight. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's you know God the Father is is very much the as I understand the Old Testament God the Father, and Jesus is a the the New Testament Jesus, and there's always been a lot of people there's conflict between those, and we get to see God, and he is he he let's just say he pairs him up with Sunstar to try and influence his behavior. Shall we yeah, say? to God, like Sunstar is what he thought Jesus was going to come to Earth and be like. He thought Jesus was going to come to Earth and be like a superhero and kick some ass and, you know, uh, get people in shape. And uh, when Jesus tried a different approach, when he tried to heal people with 
healing and forgiveness, uh, God didn't understand that. And, you know, this is a conflict between God's approach in the Old Testament and Jesus' approach in the New Testament that, I, you know, I'm not the first person to write about this. This is a very common sort of theme in uh, Christian literature. In fact, the, uh, the uh, Gnostic Gospels, which were considered heretical and ordered destroyed after the Council of Nicaea in the 4th century, there are books that deal with this conflict. In fact, one of them suggests that that God is actually a, a, a nice guy. He's much more like Jesus, uh, but that he put these two angels in charge of the world while he went to go create other worlds, other planets. And it was the two angels he left in charge who were just smiting people and, and coming up with all kinds of rules and um, flooding the earth. And then when God came back, he realized what a mess they'd made of things and it sent his son Jesus to like fix it, to teach it. Uh, and, and while this book and, and I don't really subscribe to that view, I think it's, it's very much about the conflict between trying to heal people with institutional solutions like law and revenge and force and trying to heal people with personal solutions like forgiveness and love. Mm -hmm. There's a, a wonderful sequence where Sunstar is taking on this gang and he's flinging them through the window, basically. And Jesus is out there and I get you get a sense that he's supposed to hold them in place until Sunstar gets all the ones taken care of. And Sunstar is kind of surprised when he comes out and the criminals are not there. And he says, well, where did they go? And Jesus's response was very telling. He says, I healed them. And Sunstar goes, well, why would you do that? Because they needed it. And I, I, I had to stop there for a second. I had to think, wow, that is quite the contrast that you're laying out between these things, between, you know, superheroes and the way that they always go in punching and the way that, uh, that, that you're in showing how Christ would deal with situations. I, I really had to stop and think about that. Well, thanks. And I, and I think we forget sometimes how simple the problem really is because we don't really think at some point we just sort of internalize the idea that we exist to serve institutions. We exist to serve the law or the police or, you know, our jobs, not that they exist to serve us. And that's the sort of thing that Christ kind of reminds Sunstar of. It's like, well, they just, I heal. Why do I heal them? Why, do I, why does anybody do anything? Because they need it. Mm -hmm. And it sort of resets them in a way. It, it makes them confront how simple these solutions really are. Well, he, and the next thing that happens right after that, when I turn the page, there's another thing that made me stop. And Sunstar goes, you can't go around healing people just because they're in pain. And Jesus goes, why not? <laughs> I had to stop again. I said, wait a second. I had to think about that for a minute. That, yeah, that's, it's kind of the beginning of Sunstar's mind sort of being blown by Jesus' like, um, perspective starting to be changed. But, mm -hmm. but Jesus makes a valid point that the reason why people do these horrible things, the reason why they are criminals is usually because they were in pain. It's not the other way around. Uh, so if you heal people, if you take care of those problems before they get to that point, then there's really no incentive for them to turn to like criminality. There's no reason for them to like hurt other people if they or themselves are not in pain. And that's the simple, that's the realization that Christ makes. that's so simple. That's that it's 
profound. Mm-hmm. There's a, a, a sign or a, like an advertisement that's up there. Uh, and again, you're dealing with advertising and stuff like that. So a, obviously, this is like a church saying this. And this reminds me of some churches. It says, this Sunday says, let Jesus play quarterback. And there's a picture of Jesus in a, in a football outfit, and he's holding a football, and he's got a halo. And, I, you know, once again, I had to sit there and think, boy, I, I, I know churches that might put that sign up there. Because yeah. it's, it's, it's a fascinating thing about that because, you know, I, I, it's an oversimplification of all this business. And yet I, I've seen that so many times, that kind of approach. And I, I got a kick out of how you did that and how you were bringing these things to light and letting people – you know, the way that you're showing these things gives us a chance to think about that, which I always enjoy. Well, thanks. Yeah, I, I came out of a, a fundamentalist evangelical church, as did you know, a lot of Americans. And the way they talk about Christ is not like at all like what he was in the New Testament. Uh, the way they talk about it, you imagine like like Tom Brady coming back yeah. to Earth. And so I want to sort of demonstrate the dichotomy between what people are expecting or what we've been taught to think Christ is like. And what he actually was like in the uh, in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Well, then there's a a place in which God is talking with Satan, and I got a, a, a once again I, I have to sit and you know I'm, I'm I'm sitting listening to this, and I'm going wow that is some kind of conversation going on there. It's it, it's something that I, I I got a kick out of because we get to see that Satan's involvement at the beginning was a little different from this perspective than, than what we might think. And I've often watched like the show Supernatural and they always, angels don't like human beings because they kind of took God's attention away from them. Yeah. And there's a little bit of that in this as, as to what Satan looks at. And, you know, you made him out of mud. He says at one point about yeah. Adam. And and that's that's biblically the- very, very sound. Like, like mm-hmm. uh, Satan was, was jealous of the esteem that God gave these new humans. In fact, a lot of the, the non-canonical Christian texts deal, or a non-canonical Judeo-Christian texts in the, the Jewish Midrash deal with the fact that, like, Satan was was jealous of the fact that God created this creature that was far below, below his capabilities, his his uh, brilliance, and, but that for whatever reason, God liked this, this this creation of his better than he did this guy who had hitherto been treated as his own family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's true. It's interesting. Now, on the other hand, I, I do want to talk a little bit more about Sunstar because as your portrayal of Jesus or the is in the book gives me thought, I had to think more about Sunstar too because he, you know, the, the way that he functions – is so interesting to me. We actually get to see him and his girlfriend, you know, take uh, vital steps and things. And the way that he deals with the villains and stuff is is very <laughs> forthright on some levels, you know. And I, I always get a kick because I always find Superman difficult for for people to write because you know he's always going to do the right thing or do the the moral thing. So, you know, we there's not a lot of mystery as to what he's going to do. That's what makes Batman a lot more interesting it seems like because we're not exactly sure what he'll do. But Sunstar is going through an evolution in this book. He's changing some from the way that he starts out and his time with Jesus and with God kind of makes him look at things a little different. And it all comes down to a sport and I I 
I don't want to mention what it is because I think it's it's one of the great things when you get towards the end of the book that comes up. And I, I love the way that that becomes like a metaphor for getting along and, and people and the differences between Jesus and Sunstar and stuff. I really love that. I thought that was a very way to deal with like that people could relate to how these things function. So I thought that was really brilliant the way that that kind of shows up towards the end of the first volume. Thank you. Yeah. I, I guess if I had to describe myself in some fashion, what kind of writer I am um, without sounding too pretentious, uh, I think I'm probably at heart sort of a fabulist where I like to write in like fables and sort of uh, elegant metaphors for thing. And, and I, and I think that that was, the, what I was trying to – that was like one of the metaphors I was trying to make with the, with this book. Mm-hmm. Well, it's really it, – it, it's very thoughtful. The, the thing I, I – like I said, I like my thinking challenged. And I like to look at things and kind of think, wait a second, I haven't considered that before. Yeah, and this book that, did a that, lot of that. Thank you. I think that's what's valuable about reading is that reading is – inherently the act of like challenging your thoughts about seeing the world through someone else's eyes. And I think that's why readers tend to be more thoughtful, intelligent people than people who aren't because they are willing to have their, their previously existing worldview changed. In fact, they're, they're buying a book precisely to have that happen. Mm-hmm. Now, and of course this is concluded and it's all collected into a first volume, but now my understanding is you've got a second volume that's going to be starting soon. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So this uh, sort of picks up where the first one left off. It's a new series called um, second coming only begotten son. And it really sort of talks about um, the uh, like Christ's attempt to sort of find disciples on earth and sort of rebuild like his ministry and try to get it right this time. And also Sunstar, uh, the Sunstar and Sheila dealing with the fact that they have a baby coming uh, in a world that Sunstar is starting to realize that he did not really do a good job of fixing the world with violence and that his son is going to come into a world that's really messed up largely because of him. Hmm. Wow. That's going to be something to, to think. So you're, you're going to continue this kind of, of examination of, both characters it sounds like oh yeah absolutely and it's it's just like it's really just a continuation of the first series we didn't really get a chance to say everything we wanted in the first series so this is really much more of that sort of examination and i i feel like the first series ended kind of like at the halfway point of the point i was trying to make with the series although i'm hoping that we'll be able to like do perhaps one or two or more series after this because i i think there's just so much more left to say Wow. That's going to be good. So when does the, the first issue of this uh, second volume come out? Uh, December 16th. So not far away. So uh, people need to get to their uh, comic shops and let them know that you want to get this one. Order the, If you haven't gotten the first series, get the trade for a second coming, the first collection, and then order the second one so you can be down on the ground floor for this one. Now, one of the things I really enjoyed was that Amanda Connor did some of the covers and stuff. Is she going to continue to do some of the stuff in the second one? I hope so. I always really love our covers, but uh, so far Richard Pace has been handling the covers and he's great too. His covers are really uh, always kind of like 
uh, amazing. And I, I think because he's the, the artist on the interior art, he has a, like a really good grasp of what would be, of what is in the, the issue that would make a real eye popping cover. So I'm happy with what he's doing, but I, but I love Amanda's work. And, and one of the good things about, about getting cover artists is that you get to work with these artists who you might not have the opportunity to work with on the interior art, but, uh, you get to work with them for like, like a brief while and, and get their interpretation of your work. And that's one of my favorite things about being in comics is that there's so many great artists with their own sort of perspective. They just seeing how they interpret your work is, is always kind of a, just a, a thrill to me. Now you and I were talking before we started to record that uh, the first book you did was actually Prez for DC. And I had the chance to interview you and that must've been, you were saying might've been one of your first interviews back in the day. I really enjoyed that Prez, by the way. I thought that was a good one. I'm, I'm always sorry when these books kind of, I think they end before their time. And this was another one that I thought. And the Flintstones, I thought, was a great one that you did. Uh, <laughs> and there's other ones, too, that you've done that, that are, are just, you know, thoughtful and, and thought-provoking. And I always get a huge kick because I did not expect that from the Flintstones, I have to tell you. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah, the Flintstones as far as I knew, it was going to be the last time I ever wrote a comic book. I thought this is like probably my career end point because Prez didn't sell at all. And oh. uh, it, it got canceled halfway through. And so I thought, okay, oh. maybe, maybe I, this is just not the right medium for me. Maybe people just don't, this is not where my readers are. So, but then they offered me the Flintstones uh, for whatever reason uh, after the failure that was Prez. And I said, okay, well, this is the last comic I'm going to write. I'm going to go all out. I'm just going to say whatever it is I have to say, and I'm going to use it as a, as a platform to talk about what I see as the foundational errors of civilization, because this is about the world's first civilization. So I'm going to talk about civilization using the Flintstones. And if they want to, you know, fire me and kick me out of the in, the industry forever, that's, so be it. This is what I'm going to say. And so I sort of approached the comic like that. Like, this is the last thing I'm, this is the, if this is the last thing I'm going to say, this is what I choose to say with that moment. And luckily people were receptive to it. And it was, you know, been able to like have a career in comics since then. That's, that was really what, what drove the writing in the Flintstones. Well, it was great. It was fun reading. It was just a joy to, to read that. Like I said, it was absolutely unexpected. When I picked up the Flintstones, I did not expect that. <laughs> and, and if somebody hasn't read that, I do recommend you go back and get that. And I thought Snagglepuss was another, another one. That was another one that I didn't expect to go the route that you did. And I thought that was a good book, too. That was a lot of fun. Thank you. Yeah, Snagglepuss actually started out on Facebook. Like I was writing just like these sort of as a joke almost, like these little dialogues between Snagglepuss and Huckleberry Hound in the voice of sort of Southern Gothic writers like um, Flannery O'Connor and Tennessee Williams. And Marie Javens, my editor, who's now the editor-in-chief at DC, she's also a Facebook friend, and she was reading these things on Facebook, and she just messaged me and said, oh, by the way, your Snagopus comic has been approved. And I hadn't been you know, even intending to make a comic, but I was just doing this as a funny thing on Facebook. But then uh, I want, it, it really sort of struck me that, yeah, this is like something I should actually write as a comic. Cool. Mm. It, it's interesting because that one I really enjoyed too. I, when I see your name on stuff, I tend to pick it up because I know I'm going to get something different than what I expect. And I, I, I have to be honest with you, comics today, there are a lot of books that are exactly what I expect. And I get sort of bored with that. So when I can read something different that I sit there and go, wait a second, 
what just happened here? I like that in the comic. And your writing tends to do that for me. So Thank I think you. That's yeah, a- I think a lot of my charm and a lot of the, the, the charm of things that I, I tend to enjoy is that it's made by people who don't know what they're doing. They don't. They haven't reduced it to a formula yet. They're still figuring it out as they go along, so they don't follow all the familiar tropes, or they're not like sort of like just trying to make something interchangeable with the uh, what's come before in the medium. And so, hopefully, uh, you know, I, I, th- I think the, the the best thing you can do when writing a comic or really anything is to just sort of like talk about the thing that is burning your hide the most. And that will be where your passion is. That will be where your sincerity is. And I think that that's ultimately substance is ultimately the best style. It's like, don't worry about trying to make, you know, how this will be as a comic or how this will be as a screenplay or whatever, Write What is burning you up at the moment? And that will be the best thing that, that you could possibly write. Wow. Good advice, I think, because that, that, I think that's one of the things that makes your writing so enjoyable is the passion and the unexpectedness of, of the things that you come up with as far as I'm concerned. So I think that that is great. Now, you've talked about Second Coming is, is on the way. Are there other projects you're working on that we should be aware of? Yeah, I've got another collaboration with Steve Pugh with DC. We're doing uh, Superman versus Imperius Lex. It comes out in January, and it's about Lex Luthor running the planet Lexor, where he is the sort of hero, and Superman is the ultimate villain. So I'm really looking forward to people being able to read that. That's part and of that future. Uh, exactly, group. future state. Yeah, oh, wow. And I've got okay. some other things I can't really talk about because they haven't been announced yet, but I've been busy. Good. Well, that's a good thing for us. We get to read this stuff if you're busy with good things. I noticed you've been doing a lot with Ahoy, too, which I, is a company I really enjoy because they like to take chances. Yeah. Which, well, Ahoy is like a, a perfect fit for, for me and my, my philosophy of writing. And I'm, I'm so glad they came along. So, yeah, I've got, got more in the tank with Ahoy, for sure. Oh, good. Well, I look forward to that. Now, if people want to follow you on social media, are there places they can go to do that? Uh, best place is Twitter. It's where I'm the most active and angry. And my my Twitter handle is at Manrus, M-A-N-R-U-S-S. Uh, yeah, so meet me there. I also have an Instagram account, but it's not very – I'm not terribly active on Instagram. It's mostly if you want to see pictures of my uh, the squirrels in my yard or my cat, you can check me out on Instagram. Same account. But, but otherwise, uh, follow me on Twitter. Okay, that sounds good. Okay, you and I, I'm afraid about for those squirrels. I, you never know. Yeah, they're they're sh- they're real crafty. Like I had a squirrel steal a whole can of nuts off of my uh, my deck table, like right in front of me. Just came up, took the whole can of nuts, and carried it up a tree. There might be a comic in there somewhere. I, I, I'm not sure, but yeah. Uh, there might be. So anyway, well, it's good talking with you, Mark, and I, much success. Uh, second coming, the the second book is is coming out. It's the sec, it should be second coming squared or something. <laughs> yeah, uh, third coming. Uh, um, yeah, it's oh. uh, second coming. Only begotten son comes out on December sixteenth. All right, so we should pay attention to that. And the Superman book is coming in January, January. so we look for that. So there's all kinds of good things. So, Mark, if we see your name on a book, we need to be sure to buy it. So I Thanks. Think it's gonna be- I, I agree. I concur with that assessment. <laughs> okay, that sounds good. People need dramatic examples to shake them out of apathy, and I can't do that as Bruce Wayne, as a man. I'm flesh and blood. I can be ignored. I can be destroyed, but as a symbol... 
Get the latest from the comics universe. News, interviews, previews, and reviews. Listen to the weekly Wayne's Comics Podcast so you can keep reading your comics. That's it for this week. Please be back next time when I'll be speaking with another great comics creator. But until then, keep reading your comics.